right, we are back. There, there were so many deaths in August that we were overwhelmed in doing any obituaries, so we still haven't gotten around to Ted Kennedy or Dominic Dunn or Corazon Aquino, etc. But uh, let's just pick up in September and <laughs> get to those guys later. And note the passing, first of all, of Francis Regalo, the engineer who invented hang gliding. It was noted that during World War II, aeronautical engineer Francis Regalo became interested in devising a flexible ultralight aircraft so inexpensive that anyone could own one. So he sewed together basically a kitchen curtain into a triangular shape, which resembled kind of a combination parachute and boat sail. It was an early version of the Regalo wing, which is the basis for modern hang gliding and paragliding. Regalo, a Stanford graduate, perfected the concept at home, said the New York Times. He worked in the late, uh, late 50s on um, a paraglider as a means to bring space capsules back to Earth. NASA eventually abandoned that idea in favor of good old-fashioned parachutes. But flying buffs became fascinated by paragliding news in uh, aviation magazines. And in Australia, people began to think the new wing might just be the thing to fly behind boats. So while Americans were jumping off of hills, the Australians were pulling uh, uh, hang gliders behind boats. A little tidbit mentioned in the obituary that I was not aware of. Apparently it was on October in 1961 where an aeronautical engineer named Barry Palmer did the first hang gliding flight uh, taking to the skies near Sacramento. I don't know anything about this episode with Barry Palmer, but if anyone out there does, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. If Mr. Palmer is still around, we would love to talk to him about this, uh, this pioneering flight. We also want to note the passing of Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug, who passed away this month at age 95, arguably saved more lives than anyone in history by his ushering in of the Green Revolution. Borlaug was a plant scientist who's estimated to have kept as many as a billion people from starving by developing superior crop strains. This enabled much of the globe to feed itself, and for his efforts, he won the 1970 Nobel Peace Prize. In the last half of the 20th century, it was predicted there would be massive famines around the world. It didn't happen, in no small degree, thanks to the efforts of Norman Borlaug. Mr. Borlaug traveled down to Mexico in the 1940s, left a good job at DuPont, and set out to increase grain yields, which had, uh, which had been falling for some time. Through some clever crossbreeding of strains, a Borlaug developed a wheat that uh, stood much much shorter, devoted less energy in, de in developing a large stock, and therefore had greater production. A lot greater, it turned out. By 1956, Mexico's wheat production had doubled. His efforts met with similar successes in uh, India, Indonesia, the Philippines, and really all over the world. Unfortunately, many have pointed out, more food led to much greater populations. And of course, uh, the Green Revolution was highly dependent upon Increased usages of water and fertilizer. The fertilizer coming from fossil fuels. In fact, noted the uh, obituary in The Economist, Greens attacked Borlaug, saying his new varieties used much too much water and costly chemical fertilizer. His link with DuPont was noted. They complained that traditional farming was disrupted and diversity was replaced by monoculture. Mr. Borlaug called them naysayers and elitists who'd never known hunger, but, but thought, for the health of the planet, that the poor should go without good food. Higher yields, he pointed out, saved marginal land and forest from farming. Inorganic fertilizer just replaced natural nutri nutrients and more efficiently than manure. As for crossbreeding, Mother Nature done it first, cross-pollinating different wild grasses until they produced a grain that could eventually expand into modern bread. 
But the Borlaug was keenly aware of the fact that increasing the food supply could create just more trouble down the road. He referred to what he called the population monster that was breathing down his neck, or rather ticking like Captain Hook's crocodile, said The Economist. Every second brought two more people crying to be fed on this planet. By 2050, Borlaug wrote in 2005, the world would need to double its current food supply. And yes, it's true that uh, these, these newer, uh, higher-yielding strains of, of crop plants have fed the world, but uh, you know, there's no doubt they have displaced other traditional strains in numerous areas, some of which are lost to posterity, whose genetic material may be needed down the road. No doubt about the fact that Norman Borlaug probably saved uh, more lives than you know, too many other people in history whose names you can mention. The only problem is uh, to note whether posterity will regard him as someone who truly saved the lives or just postpone uh, their loss, coming through possible future famines of a much-expanded population on Earth. I do have some problem with his argument that uh, this was saving marginal lands as well, because when there's more people no matter which country you may choose, from you know, Rwanda to India to America, when there's more people, there's some search for you know, more lands to be brought into production. All right, we got about 10 minutes left. Let's note a couple more obituaries. Larry Gelbart passed away last week. Very funny guy, Mr. Gelbart. Wrote raucous comedy for 60 years. Gelbart grew up in L.A., the son of a Latvian immigrant barber, whose father had many celebrity clients, including Danny Thomas, who... The elder Gelbart talked into giving his quick-witted son a job writing radio gags. The youngster was soon working for Sid Caesar, one of the premier names in early television. By 1962, Gelbart shared a Tony Award for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, a vaudevillian-style farce based upon the writings of the Roman satirist Plautus. And folks, if you've never seen Zero Mostel in the movie version of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, I suggest you do so soon. Gelbart's most famous for having been a writer on television's M.A.S.H., which he did for the first uh, four of the show's 11 seasons. He did pretty well in the movies, too, receiving Oscar nominations for Oh God, 1977, and Tootsie, 1982. He also won another Tony on Broadway for his musical City of Angels. Gelbart described himself as being exhausted by relentlessly battling studio executives over controversial storylines. I remember seeing a, a, a production that was on television, I don't know, about six or eight years ago, where Gelbart frankly talked about how, because he'd been successful in TV, once in a while they'll grant him the freedom to put something out there that's pretty hard-hitting. The piece in question talked about uh, how media executives control what it is that the public sees, to a rather untoward degree. All right, we got three more obituaries, not of people. Actually, the first one is a reverse obituary. We reported uh, last year that Discover Magazine was kaput, but over the months, the quality of its writing appears to have improved considerably. We're completely won over by the fact that uh, in the current edition of the magazine, uh, they list some online discussions with two people we've had on this program, Chris Mooney and Phil Plate. According to the magazine, if you go to blogs.discovermagazine.com, you can read Chris Mooney's piece on how scientific illiteracy has cost us 20 years on global warming, whereas uh, Phil Plate weighed in on the topic of how, uh, how there's a myth that astronomers should see UFOs. Phil asked the question of uh, how it is if both amateur and professional astronomers are constantly viewing the sky, why is it there are so few reports coming from them of UFOs? Good question. We have a political obituary to report, that of the late 
the late in quotes, Senator John Edwards, who managed to turn his career as a shyster lawyer in North Carolina into the U.S. Senate, and uh, his pretty boy good looks got him on the 2004 ticket with John Kerry, wherein he did absolutely nothing to help Kerry advance toward the White House. Well, it turned out uh, he uh, knocked up one of his, uh, his um, political associates, and at one point asked one of his campaign workers to take the rap for him. Article by New- Neil Lewis in the New York Times noted that when Edwards was running for president, and even later when he still held out a hope for a senior cabinet position in the Obama administration, two of his wealthy patrons provided his paramour, Riel Hunter, with large financial benefits, including a new BMW and lodging that were used to keep her out of public view. The article, John Edwards is now largely disdained. To many, it was not only his liaison with Hunter, but also what seemed his elaborate effort to cover up his behavior to preserve his political ambitions. Gee, you think? Anyway, this correspondent had a chance to, uh, to ask a few questions of ex-Senator Edwards when he came to UC Davis a couple years back, and I must say I was extremely unimpressed. Therefore, I'm not sorry to report his political obituary. And in terms of uh, premature obituaries, the American bee industry (laughs) may be also in that category. Discover Magazine has a pretty good article by Morgan E. Peck about uh, what's happening to bees in America. It turns out that uh, these, uh, these, these disappearances called colony collapse disorders of our bee populations has apparently uh, been thought to be due to inbreeding of bees. Apparently, like uh, like the crops that Norman Borlaug uh, supplanted, honeybees need a lot of genetic diversity to survive. This is causing beekeepers to try and go out and gather up uh, some wild honeybees, uh, some hives that are out in trees. And, you know, you, you've all seen these when there's swarms uh, uh, going about the countryside. Well, maybe you haven't. If you haven't grown up in the country, maybe you've missed this. But uh, uh, a swarm of bees trying to locate a place to set up a hive is a very exciting thing to witness. And doggone it, Mr. McMillan, make a note. We're going to have to go over and talk to some of the uh, the people in the apiary center here at, uh, at UC Davis about beekeeping. All right, two final items. One about an astounding revolution taking place in biology. This article comes from Discover. Well, there was a recent piece in Scientific American we want to talk about, but the punchline here is that DNA contains large, large segments of coding that we don't know, we're just not sure what it does. It doesn't seem to code for proteins, and it's been thought for decades now that that's the secret of biology. The DNA codes for RNA, and the RNA then gets transcribed into proteins, and that's how we all work. We meaning everything from protozoans to redwood trees to you and me. Since large sections of DNA do not actually code for proteins, it's been called junk DNA. In spite of the fact that it's a well-known principle in biology that if something is junk and serves no purpose, it's usually shucked in short order. There's been a sneaking suspicion, therefore, that this junk DNA was actually doing something. And well, now they appear to have figured out what a lot of it is doing. It's creating RNA that does not code for proteins, but actually does stuff on its own. The stuff includes attacking other bits of RNA to regulate it and regulating proteins and doing all kinds of things that hadn't previously been imagined. By the way, this makes sense in trying to figure out how it is life developed on Earth. This was always a big puzzle of how you could get DNA molecules into making proteins. 
Well, it turns out if you can get replicating organisms by DNA making RNA, which is a much easier step, the whole thing is accomplished with much greater ease. Believe you me, this is a topic we're going to uh, come back and talk about because, well, it's just so damn revolutionary. Although in retrospect, it just, you know, makes you wonder what we've been thinking all these years. All right, two minutes left. Let's talk about Walter Alvarez. He's been on our short list of desired guests for this program. And by God, we're going to get him one day. But Walter and his father, Louis Alvarez, postulated 20 years ago that the long mysterious extinction of the dinosaurs was attributable to a meteor collision with planet Earth 65 million years ago or so. And as time has gone on, they've actually found the smoking gun, the crater in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico that appears to have been the source of the dinosaur's demise. Discover asked Alvarez the question, what if the asteroid had not hit the Earth? To which he replied, the descendants of the microorganisms we studied would have kept on going, and along with them, the dinosaurs. Dinosaurs had been around for 150 million years, and they were the dominant large animals on Earth. The mammals were never going to displace them until that impact took place and the dinosaurs became extinct. You can see in the paleontological record that from that point on, the mammals burst forth, getting big, getting varied, and taking over. We didn't do it because we were superior organisms. We did it because the contingency, the unlikely event of the asteroid hit, got rid of the competition. You know what I like about Walter Alvarez? He refers to we as the mammals collectively. We look very forward to speaking with him ourselves one of these days, hopefully before the year is out. I'm out of voice, and we're out of time, and so it's time to quit. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. I'll see you next week, hopefully, with better vocal cords. <laughs> we'll see you then. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing for kings, nothing for crowns, bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Oh, situations, new complications, nothing portentous or polite. Tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. Something convulsive, something repulsive, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something aesthetic, something frenetic, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing of gods, nothing of fate. Weighty affairs will just have to wear.